Okay, good evening everyone, welcome back. Winter has come for at least 24 hours, so, and then, you know, it'll be hot by tomorrow afternoon, probably. <laughs> but hang in there, it feels good for a lot less. So, um, so welcome back everybody. Um, I think that I sent out to all of you just a reminder about our sponsor meeting that's gonna be happening in November, so make sure that you contact your sponsors. If you haven't chosen a sponsor, look to one of our team members, talk to me about it, talk to one of the team members about it if you haven't already chosen a sponsor. And then also we need that sponsor commitment form um, to be filled out, um, you know, in case as well. So, so I need all that filled out. And then the back of the commitment for sponsorship is also emergency contact name, number, and email I need as well. So make sure you get all that information too. Okay? All right. And then also about a month from now, the 24th, we're going to start going to Mass together at the 11 o'clock Mass. So that's all on your schedule. It's, it's identified as B-O-W, Vow, Breaking Open the Word. So um, that will be the first time that we go to Mass together, so your sponsors need to be present for that as well. If they can't be, one of our team members can stand in, so if they're out of state or they're traveling or whatever. And if for some reason you're traveling on that weekend, just let me know. It's not mandatory, but we'd like you to be there because we're going to actually welcome you, you know, on behalf of the parish. So um, and you'll get a special blessing. And we'll enjoy, after the holiday, you will get dismissed. And we're going to go to the activity building on the second floor and talk about the gospel in small groups. So that'll be a lot of fun. Okay? Questions, comments, concerns? Okay, great. I'm going to let Mark pray. Um, so I'll let him do that. Uh, Mark McNeil is one of our regulars in RCIA. Um, Mark also sat where you are sitting a long time ago. I think he gets mad at me when I tell, tell you he's a convert because he's been Catholic so long now. <laughs> Longer now than you were anything else, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, Mark is, is great. And he, I always invite him back to talk on the Blessed Trinity because it's one of the doctrines that he himself struggled with. After earning a BA from Luther Rice College, uh, Mark went on to earn a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies from Luther Rice and a Master of Arts in Philosophy and a Master of Arts in Theological Studies from the University of St. Thomas. After serving on the faculty at Montgomery College and the College of the Mainland, he joined the faculty at Strike Jesuit in 2000, where he's been ever since. He's currently um, an assistant principal, and he is responsible for the ongoing theological formation of the faculty, as well as the occasional opportunity to teach the students. He also serves as adjunct faculty in theology at University of St. Thomas, and I know he teaches at Holy Rosary Convent in Missouri City when they invite him. So please help me welcome uh, Mark McNeil to talk about the Blessed Trinity. Nice to be with you. It's nice to see some familiar faces too. I've been in uh, somewhere or another. I don't know how many years it's been that uh, been coming around here. I've known Mary for a long time. Ten years? Uh, ten years. Uh, and even go back a few years before that. Uh, with, uh, Fullness of Truth. Yeah, yeah. Fullness of Truth is the first place I ever met you. Yeah, and, and, but I remember going to the other parish you were at. And uh, where were you before? Oh, here? Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Good memory. Wow. Yeah. That's So that's dating us. We're growing old together, Mary. <laughs> uh, well, uh, 
Mary said that I began with prayer, and one of you brought to my attention a prayer in the Catechism in the sections that you were reading, uh, or I think you were reading. Uh, I'll, I'm going to use a prayer that's found in paragraph 260 on page 69 of, your, of the Catechism, uh, and then it will be, will be followed by a very detailed quiz on all the material that you were supposed to read. Just kidding. It's uh, one of the denser sections in the Catechism. There's some very challenging things there. Uh, but, and we're certainly not going to cover them all here today, but I'd like to try to give maybe a little bit of framework or context or summary or introduction to some of those ideas. Uh, but let's use the, the prayer in uh, paragraph 260, uh, which is, uh, according to the footnote, it's the prayer of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. So let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh my God. Trinity, whom I adore. Help me forget myself entirely, so to establish myself in you, unmovable and peaceful, as if my soul were already in eternity. May nothing be able to trouble my peace or make me leave you, O my unchanging God. But may each minute bring me more deeply into your mystery. Grant my soul peace, make it your heaven, your beloved dwelling, and the place of your rest. May I never abandon you there, but may I be there, whole and entire, completely vigilant in my faith, entirely adoring, and wholly given over to your creative action. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our experience this evening in talking about the Trinity and the Creed uh, is going to be a little bit like uh, you know, dipping a cup in the ocean and trying to empty it out. We're not going to be successful uh, anymore in our attempt to deal with the subject matter before us as if we were emptying the ocean. Um, so what are we going to try to accomplish? Well, we want to talk about, I sound very loud to me. of the human soul. 
what I mean by perfections is they complete something that the soul needs. Uh, deep within all of us, uh, there is the center of your awareness that is you, that you experience in this bodily world that you're a part of. So each of you, you know, maybe the best way to see it is the self that is you is what's there when you go to bed tonight and you're not talking to anyone else, but you're aware of yourself. And each of us, and, and in one way or another, all religious faiths believe something like what I'm about to describe. I was reading something the other day that was describing another religion, very uh, foreign in many ways to Catholicism and to Christianity. But it was describing a human quest to find our meaning. What is my life all about? What is your life all about? And the path that it took, and it's a, a Far Eastern religion, the path that it took was very similar to a path that we would describe as a way of beginning to open one's heart to faith. It started by talking about, you know, what is it that we really want as human beings? And it says one candidate for what we want as human beings might be, someone might suggest, well, pleasure. We want to have pleasure. And of course, from the time that you know we're very small children, we want to be pleased. We want a nice meal. We want something to drink. We want comfortable uh, setting in which to experience our lives. But pleasure in and of itself, if that is the only goal of my life, that quickly shows itself to be too small. I mean, when you finish eating your meal or drinking your drink, you want something more in life. If all we wanted was bodily pleasure or satisfaction, we'd be little different from the other animals, because they want that too. But we as human beings find that those things quickly dry up in their importance or significance to us, because we want to reach beyond them. Furthermore, there's another problem, that if I make pleasure the only goal of my life, what tends to happen is I become enslaved to my pleasures or my desires. And you see those who become absorbed or obsessed with food or drink or drugs or other things to just bring some type of pleasing sensation to the body, and they become a slave to it. Or think of how many people, because they become enslaved to pleasure, find themselves bringing misery into their own lives because they can't be faithful to the people around them, or they can't be faithful to their commitments, because all that matters to them is the fulfillment of their own pleasures. And so quickly, pleasure shows itself to be a dead-end street as the goal of everything in my life. There's another one, though, that presents itself. As we get a little bit older, we start striving for, you know, pleasure something with us from the time that we're very young. But as we get a little bit older, we find ourselves wanting to be in competition with those around us. We find ourselves wanting to get uh, not only pleasure, but we also want fame or we want success. We want money. We want power. Those are things that allow us to get some measure of control in the world, and we get some satisfaction from getting ahead, or being known, or being recognized. But like pleasure, the focus of success, and money, and fame, and all those things, is me. The motivation for getting them is me. I want power. I want fortune. I want recognition. I want to succeed. I want to be better than this one. I want to do this well. And so even though these things, there's nothing wrong with pleasure in and of itself, and there's nothing in and of itself wrong with money or success or those kinds of things, but if they become the end goal, if they're everything to me, then I can become their slave. And they eventually become my ruin. 
If that weren't so, then it should be the case that people who are more famous should be proportionately happier than people who are not. And I don't think, at least in my experience of people who have some fame or who have a lot of money, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are proportionately happier. In fact, often it brings greater misery because I can't hold on to fame. People just aren't going to think about me all the time. And it, I operated when I was a young man, you know, in my late teenage years, early 20s, I operated under the assumption that the people who listened to me talk cared as much about what I had to say as I do. And one time I walked out of a church that I was speaking in when I, I was long before my Catholic days, many, a number of years before my Catholic days, and I walked out of a church that I was speaking in, and the thought hit me like a ton of bricks. They're going to forget what I just said, just like I forget what other speakers say when I listen to them. And the realization that the world doesn't revolve around me was eye-opening. I'm under no illusions. You're going to forget most of what I say, except those of you that take detailed notes. Uh, uh, you're going to forget most of what I say after this evening is over. So why bother? Well, hopefully the things that we talk about, will, some of them will settle down inside, and they will come back, and they will provide a kind of frame of reference or foundation for your ongoing life of faith. And so even though you forget particular persons or uh, particular concepts that are presented, hopefully those, those fundamental ideas will sink in there and become guiding principles and context for living your life and, and hopefully making it better and better in your Christian journey. So if pleasure and success, money, power, fame, in and of themselves are not the goal or the supreme goal of my life, well, where do I go from there? Well, in what I was reading, very similar to what we might say uh, in our own religious context, they went on to say that often people, when they come to realize that pleasure and fame or success are not the end all of life, often they start, start looking for a way to go out from themselves uh, to others. That maybe it's not all about me. Maybe I can do something to make the community better. Maybe I can do something to make our country better. Maybe something to make our world better. And so out of that emerges a sense of duty or obligation. I owe something to others. I owe, I owe it to give back to others. And so people might you know, move from there to being more generous or more serving or more helpful to those around them or giving back to the community in some way or another. But even that doesn't seem to fully capture and answer the deepest longings of the human heart. It seems like even more fundamental than that is a desire that we have as human beings not only to exist, we want to be, we want to, you know, we want to share in this reality that we're a part of, but we also want to know, we want to understand things. Human beings are inherently curious. We want to know, we want to understand. We want to know what the truth of things is. I remember when I was a boy, my dad would uh, order these, I guess they were, uh, you know, things that were offered on television. We'd have these books that would come to the house, you know, Mysteries of the Universe, or Mysteries of This, or whatever. And so I remember as a boy flipping through these books. We'd have some books on astronomy. I'd look at these, you know, constellations of stars or galaxies and weird formations in the universe, and I would just wonder, what's out there? What's out there? And what I discovered over time is that there's actually something as mysterious or perhaps more so present deep down inside of every one of us. The people sitting around you in this room are as mysterious and as 
unique and uh, you know, I'm going to run out of words here that I should use. I was going to say peculiar and curious. The people around you are an endless sort of well of discovery and of possibility. Each of us is a kind of potential for endless questioning and wondering. Each of us is a reservoir, or, an, or I should say a container, that is searching for something to fill it that seems to be boundless. Every one of us. You can see it in all kinds of different ways. You can see it in, you know, uh, watching a movie or watching a play or listening to a song that includes a cry for eternity. And I can give lots of examples, and I'm sure you could too. Uh, a song like, I don't know if you, any of you recall, I'm sure some of you do, the old song by Jim Croce, Time in the Bottom. Uh, you should listen to it. It's a haunting song about a man's love for his wife. That's the circumstances under which it was written. And he's struggling to try to express his desire to love her endlessly. And he describes it like if time were a bottle, and every moment were a drop that I filled it with, I would want to fill it to eternity's end and then pour it out again, drop by drop. In other words, I don't want it to end. The tragedy of Croce's life, of course, is he was in an air, uh, airplane crash and lost his life in it. Uh, and his bride, uh, I think she's still alive, uh, but she lived out her life without being able to experience that unfolding love of her husband. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of the ways in which human beings express their desire for infinity, their desire for endless love and relationship and fulfillment that is not answered in things as petty and small as me being famous for a few minutes or having more money in the bank than somebody else. Those things don't satisfy those sort of endless cravings that we have. So what could satisfy those cravings? You see, what I'm describing here is, is a line of reasoning or a path of reasoning that you can certainly find in the Catholic faith, but you can find it all over the world. Everybody that thinks reflectively about it, every culture that seriously thinks about human experience, comes to the conclusion that pleasure and success and fame and money, and even serving the temporary goods and concerns of our world, incomplete to satisfy the human longings, the desires of the human heart. Why is there so much drug abuse and anxiety in our culture? It's because people are searching for answers to these questions that this temporary changing world can't give them. So one way to deal with it is to turn up the radio, drink a little bit more, eat a little bit more, distract ourselves a little bit more, design better phones with greater stimulation on them so that we can be distracted more and more. Because in the silence of our hearts, when we're reflective, when we think about it, we discover there is this yearning and longing for something that none of these things can completely answer. As good as they are in their own little ways, none of them are the end all of the human person. So what does this bring us to? It brings us to faith. And what do I mean by faith? I don't mean by faith a kind of credulity that we just believe anything that we're told. Or that we just believe things for the sake of believing. Not at all. Faith is, first of all, it is a natural human response to love and care. 
We respond to our world with faith. We respond to the people around us who love us with faith. We don't, whenever we're, you know, four or five years old and our parents are raising us and your parent says to you, oh, your birthday is next week, and you don't say, prove it. <laughs> we don't do that because we trust mom and dad. Now, they may give us reason not to trust them along the way, and we might question them about things, unfortunately. That sometimes happens. But most of the time, we find that our parents and those around us are basically trustworthy, and we believe them. We trust them. That's a very natural human response to things. Can you imagine if we were all radical skeptics and we didn't trust anybody about anything at all? We didn't have any measure of confidence. We had to prove everything for ourselves firsthand. Nothing could get off the ground. Science could never get off the ground because science is always building on the conclusions of those who came before it. Uh, history would be dissolved. We couldn't trust any, anyone from the past. No testimony from the past. No documents could be trusted. Because they could have been forged that I didn't see the events myself. And so if we don't trust anybody about anything, we would find ourselves in a very, very primitive state. In fact, we would be at war with one another because I couldn't trust the bank where I put my money. I couldn't trust my mortgage company that to my paid money. I couldn't trust my wife because she might be deceiving me. I couldn't trust my employer because they might be putting me off. I couldn't trust anyone if I were a radical skeptic. And so it is unnatural to human beings to not believe and trust. It's unnatural. When we talk about Christian faith, though, or the faith that we are expressing in the creed, we're not just talking about a natural tendency to trust those around us that are trustworthy. Instead, we're talking about something supernatural. We're talking about God showing us things that surpass the power of the human mind to know. God reveals them to us and also energizes our nature, our intellect, our mind, our will to say yes. So faith is not only our natural desire to trust and to understand, but it also is God's loving power infused in the soul that allows me to look at what God has revealed and say, yes, I believe. But when we say, yes, I believe, it's not somehow opposed to reason or opposed to good thinking and sound logic. To the contrary, our faith completes what reason begins. Let me give you an example. I look at you across the room, and some of you I recognize and know you a little bit, and many of you I don't know. And so, even though I see you and may or may not recognize you, I know some things about you even though I have never talked to you. That's not because I did some research before I got here or hired a private investigator or anything like that. I just know by looking across the room, I can know your approximate height. I can, I can make a pretty good guess at your age, perhaps. Uh, I know where you're located. I know probably where you live, at least generally here in the city of Houston or the surrounding area. I know some things about you just by the fact that you're here. Similarly, we know some things about God just by experiencing God's creation and by knowing ourselves. If the world around us is made by God, I can know something about God like I might know something about an artist by looking at the artist's painting or sculpture. I can know something about the creativity of the artist. I can know something about his or her rationality and likes or dislikes, perhaps. I can know some things about the artist 
by the artist's work. But I can't know everything about the artist. In fact, my knowledge of the artist is severely limited to what I can discern in the work of art. However, when it comes to God and God's revelation, I can know some things about God by studying the world. I can also know some things about God by studying my own heart. For example, I know that my heart is longing for eternity. I know that my heart is longing for eternal love. I know that. And I see evidences of it all around. And if I'm honest with myself, I know that that's true. I'm longing for everlasting love. The other day I went down to get a card for my wife for a special occasion, and I was looking through different cards at the card shop, and I saw uh, almost every one that I looked at had some kind of allusion to eternity. I would say, you know, to my sweetheart, I will love you with all my heart. Never does it say, to my sweetheart, I will love you with all my heart for the next six months. <laughs> they never say that, unless it's some joke card or whatever. Uh, being serious, there's this longing for eternity. And I would argue with C.S. Lewis and others, I think, and say Thomas Aquinas and others, who argue that if there is a natural capacity that we have as human beings, a natural desire that we have as human beings, the object of that desire exists. We all have a desire for food. There is such a thing as food. Now, I might find myself in a desert with no food around, but that doesn't mean that food doesn't exist. I have a need and a desire for water liquids, and they exist. I have a desire and longing for eternity, and the eternal exists. A lot more to flesh out that argument, but I would, I would argue that a sound uh, form of that argument can be made, and if that's true, then that suggests that the very structure of human beings is for God. We are made for God. We are made to experience God and be united together with now, supernatural faith, or faith that we're talking about in the creed, is not only our belief in those things that I just said, because the things that I just said, we could discover, theoretically, through reason. They don't have to appeal to our faith. But just like you're sitting across this room, and I can know some things about you, there are some things I cannot know about you, unless you reveal them. I can't know what you love the most. I can't know the people and experiences that have made the biggest impact on your life. I can't know what you're thinking about right now unless you reveal it. So it is with our faith. There are some things about God we can know for reason by studying what the world is God's effect. But there are some things about God I could only know if God shares them with us and tells us about. And we call that supernatural faith or theology or revealed revelation. There's lots of different words we use for it. But the, but the basic point is the same. We can know some things about God through reason, and there's some things that God has to come down and disclose to us. And if I believe them, if I accept them, I accept them because God said them. And I hear God's voice and recognize it. Oh. But God has also given us other signs or indicators to point us to his words as being true. So what's this have to do with the Trinity? Well, let's go back to this image that I'm trying to paint here 
of the human person with this reservoir or this, this void within that is searching for, for fulfillment in the infinite God, ultimately. Well, what is that God like? And what has that God told us? Well, in the Catholic faith, we believe that God, and I'll watch carefully what I'm about to do because I want, I'm going to make a really important point from this, but in the Catholic faith, we believe that because God is the creator of this world, because God made time and space, God is not a subject of time and space. God is the cause of time and space. So in other words, if there were no God, there would be nothing at all. Just close the whole thing up. It's gone. There's nothing. Because God exists, and God must exist, God is self-existent, must always be. God made a world out of total generosity, out of total freedom, out of total love. God made a world that doesn't have to be, the world could just as easily have not been as it is. God made a world that doesn't have to be, and that world that doesn't have to be changes and moves along and is finite, is limited. Things come and go in this world. Like the, you know, the, the clouds that come and go and appear, or a mist that appears for a moment and vanishes, or a flower that rises up in the morning and withers away in the afternoon heat. So it is everything in this world comes and goes. And so it screams out to us, upon what does it depend? What is its origin? What accounts for a world that's so ephemeral and comes and goes as it does? What accounts for that ultimately? And the reality that explains it, or upon which it is grounded, is something that is not subject to the same becomingness, the same you know, fleetingness. It's something that always is and must be. And that we call God. But the problem is, as we try to start thinking about God and try to start grasping at God, we find that our minds are so small. They're so limited. They're so immersed in this world that's coming and going that I have a very difficult time getting my mind wrapped around God. In fact, it's not only difficult, it's impossible. I find that the closer I get to trying to understand and grasp God, seriously, the more seriously I try to do that, my mind becomes darker. Not because God is dark. God is brighter than the noonday sun. But the absence of light is not because God is absent. It's because my mind closes and shuts down in the presence of the infinite God. St. Thomas Aquinas said that our knowledge of God is like the light of the sun to the eye of the owl. The owl's eyes are not designed to gaze upon the sun, nor are ours, but that the owl's eyes are designed to see by the night sky. And so when the sun comes up, it closes its eyes. So it is when God appears in all of his radiance and all of his glory, the mind of the human person must close and turn away because it is too bright. It is too great. So this creates a paradox in understanding ourselves. On the one hand, we have this capacity or this desire to reach out to the infinite. The problem is, when I see the infinite, if there were such a thing, if I could see the infinite God, it would blind me. So I want the infinite, but I seem to lack the capacity to wrap myself around it. And it's a strange paradox. 
for being a human person, a human being. We're really odd creatures if you think about it. If you look at us on one level, we're coming and going, and so it almost seems arrogant to say there's some significance to the human person beyond just coming and going. But on the other hand, there's a cry within all of us for infinity and for God. So we have this strange condition within us as human beings. We want the infinite, but the infinite is too great for us. And so the Catholic faith tells us this. Human beings, they're immersed in this world of change and becoming, of time and space, of the things that are fleeting and coming and going. God, this is, a, this is the incredible claim of Catholic Christianity, is that the God who is so far beyond anything we can possibly imagine, the God that we can't jump up to, no more than I can jump up and touch the moon right now. It's just beyond my capacity. The God who is so far beyond our capacity to think about and understand has come down to our life and spoken to us in the categories of our experience. At a moment in time and history and space, the infinite, eternal God that is the cause of time and space and transcends them all reaches down and takes a piece of his own creation and personally makes it his own and pours his eternal truth and life into a moment of history. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the infinite God present in finite, limited changing time and space. It's like, you know, Thomas Christ also gives this image of, um, you know, I, I was thinking, when I think of his uh, story, I think of my daughter, who was very afraid of water in her early years of life. She's, uh, she's fine now in water, but she was uh, afraid of, of learning to swim. And so I remember being in a swimming pool, and she was clinging to the side and not wanting to let go. And, uh, and I was trying to get her to push off the side and come to me, and I promised her that I would catch her and that nothing would happen to her. Now, if I had stood halfway across the swimming pool, you know, 20 feet away from her, and said, go ahead, push off the side, she would have never let go of the side because I was too far. I had to get really close to her to build up her confidence that I really am close enough to save her if something were to happen. And so I got close to her, and she let go, we did it again, we did it again, and then a week later, I stood another foot back, and then she let go, pushed, and then another foot, another foot, and then she found herself eventually being able to swim and not afraid of the water. St. Thomas says that, that one of the reasons that God became incarnate, that God took human flesh to himself, our nature, is to convince us that the distance between us and the infinite God can be bridged, not by me, but by God himself, who takes our nature and unites it to himself, so that I can be sure God loves us. If the infinite, eternal God, who is greater than anything I can possibly imagine, would enter into time and space through the humanity of Jesus and unite himself to the human family, that means he loves us. And his hand is extended in a way that we can reach him. 
in a way that I couldn't if it were all up to me to bridge the gap between myself and God. Now, let's take this a step further. So I have this capacity, and you have this capacity for God. We want the infinite God. But I don't have the capacity to reach God or wrap myself around God. But God comes down to us in Jesus to bridge that gap between us. And so then we look at Jesus, and what do we see? What does God tell us about himself when we look at Jesus? Well, this would take us a very long time to say it in detail, but let me just give you a few highlights. What do we see when we look at Jesus? We see something that is very counterintuitive. When you think about the awesomeness of God, and then you look at Jesus, you see a humility that is staggering. I mean, if in fact, Jesus is God's seizing and drawing to himself human nature, so as to reveal himself to the world, and that's what he claims to do. John's Gospel, chapter 14, magnificent text, where Jesus says to his disciples, you know, do not let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. That's a pretty remarkable saying. If I were to come here and say, do not be troubled, my children. If you believe in God, believe also in me. You would be convinced I'm crazy and, uh, and probably walk out. Because to put myself on the same plane as God seems rather blasphemous. But Jesus, the incarnate God, says, if you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, if it were not so I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. And one of his disciples speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's sufficient. And Jesus said, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and yet you have not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say and show us the Father? Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak, I do not speak of myself, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. The point that Jesus is making here is that he is not, you know, it's not like you have the Father over here, and you have the Son over here, and there's a way to get over there, and there's a way to get over here. That's all messed up. We discover the Father through the Son. That when we look at the incarnate Son of God in Jesus, we are seeing God in the most profound way that a human person could ever, in our history, ever possibly see God. So what do we see when we look at him? Well, let's just look at the bookends of the life of Jesus. Let's look at the beginning and let's look at the end. We can look at his beginnings with his birth in Bethlehem and then him growing up in Nazareth. Bethlehem was a little town. Today it's a very impoverished uh, Palestinian town in the West Bank area, just a short ways from Jerusalem. It's not a very impressive place at all. It's impressive because of what's associated with that place, but it's a very humble place, as it was in the first century, just much smaller. So here Jesus is born in a little humble village to humble parents from a little town of no real significance called Nazareth in Lower Galilee about five miles, six miles from the Sea of Galilee, a lake up in the northern part of the Holy Land. Of no real significance for the Roman world, or for the Greek world, or the Babylonian world, or any of those people that conquered this part of the world, almost never mentioned among ancient writers, it was just a, a rather insignificant village. And he grows up in the home of a carpenter. No wealth to speak of. 
And he lives out the rest of his life that way. So here you have Jesus from the very beginning of his life in a humble, even impoverished state of life. Well, fast forward to his public ministry, which the Gospels focus on most, is the roughly three years that Jesus spent in public ministry. So here he is beginning his public ministry. Now, where does he go? He goes to the baptism of John. So John's baptizing people in the Jordan River, about the same place that the Israelites had crossed over, according to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, after Moses had died. Remember, during Moses' life, that he had led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea on their journey out of Egypt to get toward the, to go toward the Promised Land. And then 40 years later, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and he takes the people across the Jordan River, miraculously, the waters part, like they had parted 40 years earlier. So that's about where John was. He was in the southern part of the land at the Jordan River, about the place that they crossed over. Baptism, or ritual baths or washings in the first century, were a sign of purification, as you might imagine, as they still are. Baptism signifies the washing away of sins. But it was also a preparatory act. It was a way of saying, I've really messed up my life, and I want to get ready for the Messiah, the great king who is coming. I want to get ready for that. And so baptism was a kind of purifying renewal or starting over of a person's life. So John was out in the, in the desert uh, by the Jordan River baptizing people who were coming from the towns and the cities to be baptized, especially people who had messed up their lives. People who had sent away their lives and had messed up uh, you know, their, their reputations and so on. They go to John saying, I want to be baptized. I want to start over. So here comes Jesus. And he goes to the same place that the outcasts, the sinners, the rejects of society. He goes to the same place that you're going. John sees him and says, I need to be baptized by you, not you to be baptized by me. And Jesus says, allow it to be so. He goes down to the waters, and there he stands in the same place that people are going to be forgiven of their sins. Now, one thing that the, the writers of the New Testament say very clearly is that in Jesus there was no sin. Peter says that, which is remarkable, because he, he lived around Jesus and walked with him several years. I don't know about you, but most of the people I know, myself included, if you're around for three years, you're going to see that they're not perfect. Peter, after the resurrection of Jesus, years later, he looked back at the life of Jesus and says, in him there was no God. In him there was no sin. It's pretty remarkable. A man that you saw at the most strenuous, most challenging of circumstances, even betrayed by his closest friend and crucified among criminals. There was no sin in him. So why is a man without sin going to John? Not for his own purification, because he's the one that John's pointing to. He is without sin. He goes to stand in the same waters to be associated with the people he came to rescue the broken and the hurting. Fast forward to the end, I just alluded to it a moment ago. There Jesus is hanging on a cross next to thieves, criminals. Crucifixion in the ancient world was a practice, a humiliating practice. It was developed first apparently among the Persians and then adopted by the Romans and they created all kinds of ingenious ways to get people to suffer for a very long time before they died. They had lots of ways of putting people to death quickly. But they wanted to have ways of putting people to death very slowly and make a public, public spectacle of them so as to deter other people from doing similar crimes. 
So Jesus is betrayed by those closest to him out of envy, out of hate of the religious leaders in the community. They conspire to put Jesus to death. There he is standing next to criminals. And the people are spewing out hatred toward him. And his words are remarkable. In fact, they're staggering. In his dying breaths, he says things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or he says to one of the thieves who hollers at him and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because over his head was a sign that said this is the king of the Jews. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at that man again in his dying breath and says, Before the sun sets today, you will be with me in paradise. So here you have Jesus from beginning to end of his public ministry, associating with the hurting, the broken, and giving everything that he is in love. I think of another scene. Remember the temptations of Jesus. Jesus is tempted. He goes off into the desert after his baptism. He goes off into the desert. He's tempted. It tells us about three specific temptations. Uh, he's tempted to, to use his power to turn stones into bread. He's tempted to leap off of a pinnacle of the temple and for him to be protected from the fall. And then he's shown all the kingdoms of the world. And, and, the, and Satan, the adversary, makes a deal with Jesus. He offers that if you will merely bow down in my presence, I will give it all to you. In other words, I'll give you the world. It's yours. Just bow to me. And in each case, Jesus rejects the temptation. In each case, Jesus chooses, instead of using his power to feed his own belly, he always uses divine power to serve others. Always. He uses divine power to serve others. He does not use divine power to protect himself in jumping off the temple. He refuses an easy deal to get the kingdom and instead chooses the path of suffering. Jesus, from beginning to end, is all about others. He is all about love. Why is that important? It's important because if Jesus is God pouring himself into time and space, what does his life of love reveal about what God is like? John, in his first letter of the New Testament, says very succinctly, but very profoundly, God is love. In other words, the very supreme instance of love, the very supreme meaning of love, is God himself. Now what can that possibly mean? I mean, there's only one God, and if God is love, how does that work? Well, here's the Christian answer that's expressed in our creed. God is not a solitary that is alone within himself for all eternity. But instead, this is what God is like. God, in a timeless way, not in a way that changes over time, in a timeless way, in God's infinite perfection, God gives. That's the ultimate essence of reality is giving. 
is self-giving. Because in the eternal now that is God, in the eternal unchanging perfection that is God, God gives. And he doesn't just give partially. He gives totally. God from all eternity gives everything that he is. And that's the son. That's over. The father is father because he gives his whole nature to his son. All of you in here are fathers or sons. Your parents gave you your nature. They didn't make you 75% human, or 50% human, or 30% human, or even 95% human. You are every bit as human as your father or your mother. Even in this world, when we give our nature to another through the procreative process in this material world, we give the totality of our nature. Not, not my person, my child is not me, but they are human like I am. The Father, from all eternity, gives his whole nature, not in a physical process, that's, that's part of our existence in this world as animal, physical beings. In a totally spiritual way, the Father gives everything that he is and what's looking back at him in the way that, that happens in, in God, what looks back at the Father is his mirror image, the Son. The Son is the Father's total gift from all eternity. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. You see, to make something like an artist is to make something that is not my same nature. To beget is to give one's nature in its totality. Your parents begat you and you are fully human. Within the essence of God, the Father from all eternity begets a Son, and He is fully God. God from God, life from life, true God from true God, begotten of me, consubstantial with the Father. Consubstantial is this fancy word that's in our creed that has a very long history that's, that's worth a lecture in its own right, but consubstantial is a way of saying it's the, the Greek word that's behind that, the, the early church spoke in the Greek language and then, and then the Latin language in the West became kind of the dominant language to talk about these ideas. And so we have all these technical terms that we use in theology and talking about our faith. They're very precise words and, they, and they're important to know something about The word consubstantial underneath that is the Greek word homoousios. Homo is the Greek word that means the same. Ousios means essence or nature. In Latin, consubstantialum, or con means with, like the same can be with or the same, and substance means nature or essence. And so consubstantial with the Father means he is the same nature as the Father. In other words, he is not inferior to the Father in, in his essence. When you look at the Father, you look at the Son, you are looking at two who are one in essence, in nature. So the Father from all eternity, gives everything that he is, and before him is the mirror image of his own being, which is his son. And the son, of course, because he is identical in nature to the father, cannot help but reciprocate by loving the father back. So the father and son give all that they are in exchange to each other. And that forms the procession from the father and the son that we call the Holy Spirit. 
have something vaguely analogous to that human experience. A man finds himself alone, as the book of Genesis says. God created a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living soul. He looked around and saw a beautiful world made by God, but then he discovers gradually that he's alone in the world. There's no one like him to give himself to. And he's made in the image of God, the likeness of God, so he resembles God. And one of the ways in which he resembles God is that he's not complete all alone in himself. And so the man looks around for one to give himself to it. He doesn't find that, you know, as, as nice as dogs are and rabbits and squirrels and cows and so on, they're not the thing I'm looking for. I'm looking for one that I can give myself to totally. And so God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He takes a rib from his side, the covering of the heart. What do you do when you're sleeping? You dream. The man wakes up and finds that the dreams of his heart have come true. God made him a bride. And now he looks and sees the face of another to whom he can relate as an equal and he can give himself entirely to. And she reciprocates and gives herself entirely to him. And out of their love issues forth new life. New life is born. So in the family, there's a triadic relationship. There's the husband, the wife, and the children that proceed from that love. This is a vague and distant resemblance to the triadic relationship that exists in God. God loves from all eternity perfectly. God is never alone. There's never a moment where God looks around and says, like Adam did, it's not good that I'm alone. There's never an aloneness in God. There is always perfect communion and love in this triadic or trinitarian relationship that exists from all eternity in God. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the mystery of the Trinity are one and three. They are one in the inseparability of their nature. You cannot think of the Father apart from the Son. I mean, think about what I've been saying. If the Father somehow walks away from the Son, or the Father, for whatever reason, did not want to give everything, there would be no Son. Because the very meaning of the Son is to be in relationship to the Father as the total gift of the Father. So if you ever imagine the Father and Son apart from each other, they both vanish. You cannot understand the Son apart from the Father. You can't understand the Father apart from the Son. And you can't understand the Holy Spirit apart from the Father and the Son. What it means to be Holy Spirit is to proceed from the love of the Father and the Son. That's what it means. And so when we say we believe in one God, we mean that God is radically and, and eternally inseparable. You can't pull God apart into parts or segments or pieces. It's impossible. It's absurd. <clears throat> but we're also not saying, when we say there's one God, that God is solitary, that God is alone and all by himself without perfect love. Now you might say, I can't understand all that. Good, because you're in good company. None of us understand all of that in its fullness. So why do we even think about it? We think about it for a number of reasons. We think about it, first of all, because God has revealed it to us, first of all. And number two, even though I don't perfectly understand it, I can begin to get glimpses of it. Thirdly, we talk about it because it is our destiny to be plunged into the life of God's love. The essence of heaven, the essence of heaven is to experience the perfection of love in imitation of the Trinity. My path to happiness and your path to happiness is not through being turned in upon ourselves in selfishness, as we talked about earlier. 
Notice that in that progression that we talked about earlier, that's not uniquely Catholic. People discover this all over the world as they think about their experience. The progression is from self-centeredness to others' orientation. Ultimately, an openness to giving ourselves back to the God who made us. And so the destiny of the human person, striving to reach our real fulfillment, our real perfection, the real aim of our, of our being, is to be plunged into the life of this infinite ocean of love, which is the Trinity. I can't imagine exactly what that is like, but I do know this, that in this world, you better watch time. What I do know is this, the moments in this world when I am most happy and when time means least, or it becomes my enemy, the moments when I am most fulfilled, I am most happy, and I am most contented are those moments where I experience love in its most profound forms. That's when I'm most fulfilled. Where time becomes my enemy. Think back in your life of the moments where time seemed to go by really fast. Think about the times when it goes by really slowly, like when you're sitting in a doctor's office or you know, whatever, uh, whatever you find where time drags. Maybe you like doctor's offices, but maybe there's something else that time drags slowly. Uh, in those moments where time is dragging, where you're conscious of the, the world is moving not as quickly as I want it to, what's not present there in those moments are those experiences in which we are most conscious of our fulfillment in loving relationship. Those moments when I am most fulfilled are those in which I have a deep sense of love. Imagine magnifying that to infinity. And that's swimming through the ocean of God's love. Another reason why that's valuable to think about, the mystery of the Trinity, is because it can be absolutely transforming to your life every day. Because even though I don't understand all about the mystery of the Trinity, and nobody does, because we're talking about the God that exceeds our full grasp. But even though I don't understand fully the mystery of the Trinity, I know enough about it to know that my happiness is not going to be found in being selfish. And when I am selfish, when I turn in on myself and forget others and live only for me, when that happens, I'm miserable. I'm not really happy in those moments. And so I find in the mystery of the Trinity the key to my own happiness. I find that the mystery of the Trinity also guides me in how I treat my wife, in how I treat my kids, in how I think about the goal of my life. What am I here for? What is it all about? The mystery of the Trinity also, like Christ reveals to us the Trinity through Jesus' relationship as the Son to his Father, we discover this mystery of the Trinity by watching Jesus. But also the mystery of the Trinity helps me to understand why Jesus lived the life that he did. We have crucifixes all over the place. There's one in the back of this room. Why would we do that? Why would we put a picture of torture on the wall? In the first century, that would have, that would have been seen as utterly disgusting. In fact, in the, in the first century, and in the centuries around the time of Jesus, apparently the Latin and Greek writers wouldn't even directly refer typically to crucifixion. They would talk about it indirectly. 
because it was a taboo subject. You don't talk about crucifixion. That's nasty talk. That's for the really low uh, persons. And so crucifixion, to have a crucifix, all of us, would have been seen as mortal, as bizarre, as crazy. So the Christian faith has as its central symbol something that was a sign of great evil, of great you know, humiliation and suffering and torture. But for the Christian, we look at the person. We look at Jesus who lived a life, a total life of self-giving. Everything he did throughout his life was to do his father's will. Even when you see him at 12 years old in the temple. And Mary and Joseph come and find him and say, we've been looking for you. And Jesus said, didn't you know I'd be my father's house? I'd be doing my father's business. His whole life was for the other. I want to do what you want, Father. Serving, always. So how does that help us in understanding who Jesus is? It helps us to understand because Jesus, in time and space and history, at a moment in the flow of time, God shows us what he's like from all eternity. And he also shows us how we find our own happiness. By uniting ourselves to Jesus and living in love. And that's the key to it all. Remember earlier, we talked about, you know, God created this world. God didn't have to. If God is perfect love in himself, he didn't need to make a world. So God made a world out of total generosity. It was free. It was free in the sense that there was nothing in God's nature that required that God create the world. In the Catechism, it talks about you know, creation as a free act of God. God didn't have to do it, but he did. Why? The only reason that makes sense to me, at least, and to, to many others, the only reason that makes sense is God made the world that he didn't have to make as an overflow of sorts of love. To invite creatures like us into God's life of love. But why did God make it like He did? Like, here we are, you know, you may be going through special troubles in your life right now. Maybe your life is fine right now, but troubles are coming. You need to be a bearer of bad news, but they, they come to all of us. Uh, there are the ups and downs of life, and sometimes there's some real bad challenges in life. Sometimes there's some real challenging things that are difficult to understand. One of the things that those moments in our lives remind us of is the temporariness of this world. They remind us of how fragile life is. They remind us that the moments of this life are fleeting and they're, they're going away. And like the cloud, my life will, you know, sort of vanish in this world. And so this world is not the place where I can pitch my tent and say, this is where I am forever. And this is mine forever. So what does this life teach me? This, what this life does is it gives me an opportunity to experience myself as a created being. I'm loved into being by God. And if I'm able to discover that in the course of this life, it invites me to a response to God. God did not make a world in which, you know, we come into the world with a tag attached to us that has a uh, how to use it well uh, code on it. We have to discover in the course of life how we're going to respond to this gift of life and being that comes from God. And so, as God made the world freely and in love, this life is an opportunity to return to God like we have come from God, freely and in love. 
freely in his body. That's why God invites us to himself, not by beating us over the head and saying, you have to believe this. You have to accept this. Or writing it in the sky. Sometimes I interact with atheists or people who want to attack our faith in various ways, which I deal with all the time in some way or another, but sometimes more intensely than others. And sometimes they want to set up a, a standard. Why didn't God make it so obvious that it was impossible to reject it? And the answer, I think, that, that you know, we're obliged to give is, first of all, I would say, what an incredibly boring life that would be. You know, imagine, imagine if everything were already defined about everything you're supposed to do, and it were already finished when you start. There's no journey to go. There are no choices to make. There are no, there's no opportunity to be heroic. There's no opportunity to be challenged or tested. It's all there. You know, like I think of, you know, let's say a new 007 movie comes out. You go to watch it. You got your popcorn or whatever. You're sitting there, and it starts out, and you see the, you know, the 007 character uh, running across the rooftop, and he falls down and dies. And then it gives you the credits and the end and all that stuff. And it lasted about three seconds. Well, how boring! What if life were like that? I mean, people like to read Lord of the Rings. You see how big that is? Some of you probably read it before. Massive. People sit through nine hours of Lord of the Rings movies and other things. Star Wars, how many of those have come out? It's a journey. It's a struggle. There's forces of good and evil that are battling against each other. There's a mystery to it. There's weakness. Luke Skywalker's not, you know, not perfect. He doesn't win all his battles and all his fights. But he keeps fighting. Frodo almost comes to the end of himself in fighting to throw the weak ring into the fires wins the end, but it's not easy. Why do people by the thousands watch sporting events? What do you do when a team's winning 60 to nothing? I want to go home too. <laughs> you like it when there's competition, when there's a battle, when there's a fight, when there's a drama. Each of our lives is a battle and a struggle. Even from the outside, it's not. Our biggest battle is the battle of your soul. Will I master myself can I conquer the tendencies in myself that pull me away from my true good? Even if I'm not a hero on the battlefield or never rescue anyone from a fire, I can still be a hero in my soul as I battle against the forces that want to pull me away from the eternal God who is love. Isn't it tragic to see someone who is a hero on the outside but can't conquer their own inside? And they fail in the greatest moral and spiritual battles of their lives. How tragic, how sad. Each one of us is a battlefield, a, 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 uh, you know, a Lord of the Rings story that's going on inside of you. And it's a story that invites your response of freedom and love in response to a God that's all around us and within us and even shows up in our history in Jesus and shows us the way. And Jesus' life is you talk about an epic battle where he victoriously comes from the dead in the end. I remember taking uh, my two youngest kids to a movie years ago. Uh, one of the, uh, I'll go a couple more minutes and I'm going to see if there's some questions. I'd really like to talk with you. Uh, anything unclear, if you got anything in the, in the catechism that's bothering you, or you have to go anywhere you want to go uh, with the subject. But let me tell you a story. I was I'd taken my two youngest kids to see one of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean uh, 
shows. It's the one where, and I'm not a master of all these things, but I just remember them, this one vividly because of the response of the kids. That we were watching it, and there was a scene at the, toward the close of the movie where uh, Captain Jack Sparrow was on his ship, and the Kraken, the big octopus thing, swallows up and destroys the ship with uh, Captain Jack Sparrow on it. Now, Jack, Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow is no Jesus figure, of course. Uh, you know, he's, he's got all his flaws, but he's the guy you root for in the movie. And so there he is swallowed up by the Kraken. And I remember one of my kids looking on and saying, Dad, he's going to come back. And Christian, 
There's what we call supernatural hope, just like supernatural faith. Supernatural hope is that even though naturally I have little to hope for in the sense of all those big grand things that I might have thought when I was young, but now there's something else that pulls me along, which is this hope in God. This hope that the very structure of my being that longs for fulfillment and completion in love and eternal joy and happiness, the very structure of my being that's yearning for that can be fulfilled in God. So my natural hope may fade, but supernatural hope pulls me continuously on. So that you can be, this isn't a commercial, this is real. I'm not just trying to sell you a bill of goods here. You can, as you get older, have even more hope, more well-founded hope, in a spectacular future than when you have a natural hope of youth. Because it's grounded in a reality that can give it to you, namely in God, who loves us, as shown in Christ. So our purpose was to talk a little bit about the creed. I hope the next time you hear the creed, recite the creed. Uh, I hope you think about some of these ideas. The creed tells us about our belief in God and the Father. It tells us about the Son. And it tells us the story of Jesus in a very rough, uh, quick way. It tells us the story. That's important, by the way. Think of this. The creed starts with God the Father. It concludes with the Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, and so on. But in the middle of it, the biggest part of the creed is about the Son. And it tells us the story. People use the word narrative a lot nowadays. You know, your narrative, my narrative, our stories. The creed is a narrative. It points us to the story of Jesus. And that story of Jesus, in time and space and history, is the narrative in which to see human life and what it is all about. To embrace that narrative, that story of God's working in history in Christ, not only introduces us to the Trinity, but it introduces us to a way of life that I know no better. I know of nothing better than the path of Trinitarian law. I know of no higher ethical system on planet Earth or in human history. I know of no more beautiful understanding of the nature of God than what we have tried to explore a little bit this evening. I know of nothing greater. I know of nothing more compelling. I know of no other religious faith on this planet besides Christianity who believes in anything remotely similar to the Incarnation, that the infinite God assumed our nature and revealed himself and his love in it. I know of nothing comparable. There's beautiful things out there, but nothing that compares to this. Okay, what do you have? Uh, questions, thoughts, uh, confusions, uh, anything that maybe you're reading that, that bothers you that we can talk about? I think I have until 8.30, which gives us about 11 minutes. Uh, we can look at each other, uh, we can enjoy the silence, uh, or we can talk, yes. Mark, Mark, can you recommend some readings that you can explore training uh, or offer? Uh, sure, the question is, uh, could I recommend some readings, uh, some things to, uh, uh, to read about the Trinity? Um, it's a really shameful thing, but about a year ago, for me to start with this, but about a year ago, uh, I had a book published with Catholic Answer Press in California uh, called, uh, it's terrible, especially for the first day, uh, but, um, but 
uh, in it, it's, it's sort of built around my story of becoming a Catholic, but a big part of the book deals with the Trinity. In fact, the, uh, I would say that more than half of the book deals with the subject of the Trinity. I grew up in a form of uh, Pentecostalism during my youth, up until the time I was 20, uh, that denied or rejected the belief of the Trinity. Uh, and so I sort of studied my way out of that, uh, and then eventually discovered the Catholic faith, in which I discovered not only kind of a, a biblical basis for believing the Trinity that I rejected as a boy, as a young man, uh, but also discovered the, the beauty of the Trinity for life and, and so on. Uh, so that was uh, very helpful to me. Uh, but beyond that, What's the, name uh, of the, book? Uh, the name of the book is um, All in the Name. Uh, All in the Name is the name of it. If you, if you find your way through it, you'll, you'll see um, uh, the reason for, for that title. But, uh, it's called All in the Name, the subtitle is something like How the Bible Led Me to the Religion of the Trinity of the Catholic Church or something like that. Uh, but it's called All in the Name. And um, you can get it on Amazon or through lots of different places. Is it a good book? Is it a good book? <laughs> you, know, you know, I and she says it's a good book, uh, but actually, actually, I have to be, I have to be very candid about it. It's not a book for everyone. You know, it's not the kind of book that's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. It's not going to, uh, it's not going to appeal to everyone. It is, uh, you know, if you want to. And I try to write it in a way that's accessible for everyone, and I've heard good things from, from some people about their experience of reading it, but it, it requires some, some focus. Like, if you read it, uh, you know, like I had a, a young man, I think he's a young man, who contacted me here several months ago, uh, wanting to talk to me about some of the ideas in the book, but he didn't know that I'd written the book, but he contacted me because of my background in Pentecostalism, and so he was asking me some questions, and I said, I directed him to the book, and I said, Actually, it'd be easier for me just to direct you to that because the questions they ask are really complicated, require a lot of time to answer. And I said it'd be hard for me to spend the time answering these. So I just directed the book and said, after you read it, uh, let's talk about it. And I'm happy to talk to you at that point once you kind of see what, where I'm going with the answers. And he, he read through it in a day. Uh, and, uh, um, and after reading, he contacted me and said that it made total sense. It, it made a lot of sense to him. But that's someone who comes from a similar background, so he could relate to some of the ideas, the concepts, and the arguments, and so on that are in it. Um, and so, it, like I say, it's not for everyone. It, it's, it deals a lot with, with scripture, and uh, because that's where the battleground, which sort of in my mind, this took place initially. And uh, so, uh, so anyway, I hope it will be meaningful, but I think uh, some people find it very helpful, and some people find it challenging uh, to read through it. Um, and, and I knew that. I knew that about the book from the beginning. Uh, when I wrote it, I knew that it would appeal to everyone. But, um, so, to go back to the question, though, uh, there are lots and lots of things on the Trinity. A lot of them are difficult to read. And so, with respect to finding literature or writings that are really accessible and really helpful, um, I think there's, I think there's a, a lack of really good things. I'll give you a couple of examples in a minute of some good things. Uh, but I think there's a lack of it. I had a priest after that book came out, and I was on a bunch of shows, you know, uh, I was on the EWTN show and a bunch of radio shows that they were promoting the book, and I had a priest that called me from up north somewhere, a very delightful uh, gentleman. Uh, I think he was just looking for somebody to talk to about things that, that most people don't want to talk about, and one of them was the Trinity, and some tedious questions that he had. So we had a, a delightful conversation uh, for a couple hours uh, about this, and one of the things he asked me 
was, I wish you would write something on the Trinity that includes a lot of the stuff that's in the book, but it's not a controversial setting. So the book is kind of arguing a position in response to the Pentecostal background they grew up in. And he said, I wish that you'd write something that's an introduction to the Trinity that doesn't have a controversial context, but just explains the Trinity. Uh, and so this is someone, a pretty well-read fellow, who's looking for something good to read. Now, if I were to try to suggest some things that are helpful to read, that are, that are accessible, that are, um, uh, that are easier to read, uh, given the subject matter, uh, I would point to, first of all, I would generally point to Ignatius Press. I'm very biased to Ignatius Press books. They have some stuff that's really difficult to read, but they also have some stuff that's more accessible. So, for example, I would, I would recommend a few things. One, I would recommend uh, a book by Frank Shee called Theology and Sanity. Uh, it's a very beautiful book, uh, Theology and Sanity is. It covers the whole range of Catholic teachings on different subjects, and there's a really beautiful chapter on the Trinity in that book that, that I would recommend. But I recommend the whole book. It's a really beautiful book about the Catholic faith. I that Theology and Sanity. And, and sanity. there's an easier one by him that's the Theology for Beginners. Which theology is for Beginners. A little bit easier. Theology for Beginners is a good book as well. Yeah, shorter book and uh, covers some similar ground. Uh, another um, another one that deals with the Trinity, let's see if there was another one I was just thinking that would be similar to that one. Oh, um, uh, I'm kind of a fan of, uh, uh, of Peter Kreft, K-R-E-E-F-T. Uh, Peter Kreft's got a bunch of books published with Nation Press and some other publishers as well. He's a witty, to the point, no-nonsense kind of writer. Uh, who teaches philosophy at Boston College for many, many years. He's probably the closest thing to a Catholic C.S. Lewis alive right now. He is a prolific writer. He's written dozens and dozens of books. Probably, I wouldn't doubt it, it's close to 100 books that he's written over the years. He's a really, really witty, bright guy that has a tendency to cut through, you know, an excess of words and get to the point. Uh, and he's got a book on the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I think it's just called uh, The Catholic Faith or something like that, uh, through Ignatius Press. Uh, that walks through the Catechism summarizing various parts of it. And so if you were to look up the sections in there on the Trinity, I think you'd find it helpful. Uh, in, in there. Um, there are a lot of other books I can mention to you, but they're, they're, you're probably disappointed with them because they're kind of dense and, and stuff. I think those are some, some good places to start. There's other good material out there as well. Um, some of it's frustrating, though, that's out there, either because it's, it's too wordy or because it's kind of inaccurate in its way of discussing Give me one dense, wordy one. A uh, dense, wordy one? Yes. Uh, okay. Um, it has to be Augustine. Um, there's, there, what did you say? I'm sorry. I said it has to be Augustine. Okay. Well, Augustine's on the Trinity is, uh, is, a, is a challenging one. I was thinking more contemporary. Uh, I mean, you know, there, uh, you know, there's a book by Edmund Hill called The Three-Person God. Uh, in fact, that kind of gives a summary of Trinitarian thought from the century. There's another one, and the author is going to escape me, but there's one called, uh, uh, I'm picturing a book in my mind, uh, that's also a very, very beautiful, uh, excellent book, but it's very helpful to you because I can't think of any of it. There's a little bit of a controversial book on the Trinity by Paul Rahner called The Trinity, and it's a very short, very dense book, though. There's some few features of it that are all yeah, you know, everybody that was anybody in the fourth century wrote a book on the Trinity, and so there's a lot of books by church fathers on the mystery of the Trinity. Um, you know. While 
seven second rule. Sorry, seven second. I have another ticket, right? You have one. What made you change? Say by the age of 20, you had an enlightenment. Why made you believe in it? Yeah, first it was kind of intellectual because I had you know, I'd grown up in this form of Pentecostalism where we, our belief was we rejected the Trinity in favor of uh, what's called modalism. We call it oneness, oneness Pentecostalism. So we, we argued that the idea of the Trinity is inherently incoherent. God can't be three and one at the same time. It's a mathematical mistake. Uh, so what we argued was that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like I'm a Father, Son, and Husband. Right now, I'm a Father, Son, and Husband. I have all three of those relationships, but I'm only one person. And so God is one person with multiple roles. So God is Father because he created the world. He's the Son because he enters the world in the Incarnation. He's the Holy Spirit because he's present in the world at work now. And so we understood Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be simply ways that God relates to the creation, but not as he is in himself. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't refer to relationships within God. They refer to God's relationships externally. Now, it makes sense in a way because, I mean, when I was given illustrations like that, I'm a Father, Son, and and so on, that makes sense. It's easy to understand. It's not as confusing as the Trinity. And so for years, I taught those ideas. What started being problematic for me, when I graduated from high school, I went to one of our colleges for, for three years and studied these things. And my goal at the time, when I entered the school, was to teach this the rest of my life. I, I loved it, believed it. Uh, but the more I studied the scriptures, and in those days, that was my almost single-hearted focus for studying scripture. And the more I studied the scriptures, the more I stumbled upon verses that I just couldn't figure out how to fit them in that box. Uh, for example, one of the verses that bothered me a lot, two, I'll give you two verses of scripture that bother me the most. One of them is in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, John 17, verse 5, he says, Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory that I had with you before the world was made. Now, if you think of that verse, Jesus is speaking to the Son, he's speaking to the Father, and speaks about the glory he had with the Father before there was a world. And he's with the Father. John chapter 17, verse 5. The other verse that bothered me a lot was John chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit, and he says, when he, the Spirit, has come, he will not speak of himself, but he will take what is mine and show it unto you. So when he speaks of the Holy Spirit, he says the Holy Spirit will speak what he hears from the Father and give it unto you. So you have the Father, the Holy Spirit, doing what the Father wills and taking and pointing attention to the Son. So in this verse you have the Holy Spirit spoken of in personal words. He hears from the Father and shows, you know, reveals me to you and so on. Those kind of interactions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not what you would expect of our understanding of God. So for example, if I came in here and I talked about, for the last hour I had talked about, you know, yeah, I'm a father and uh, of, of the Son, and I meant the whole time me, that I'm a father and son in all those same relationships, that would be silly. Yes, I'm a father and a son, but I'm not my own father. And I'm not my own son. The word father, for me, implies one other than me. So it's a confusion. When I say that I'm a father and a son, I'm not my own father, I'm not my own son. And so when the Bible uses the words father and son, it's not meaning the same person. It's meaning a relationship that exists between two. 
Now, all of the things we're talking about, this is, this is the things that I struggled with as a, as a boy, as a young man growing up, is because I wanted to be faithful to Scripture. And so, as I studied Scripture, I found these things that just didn't fit well. And then, over in our library, I found books by Trinitarians, and my initial effort was to try to disprove them, to show that they were wrong. My senior year of school, my last year was a three-year school, my last year of the school, I made this my, my goal in life, was to study these verses that bothered me and prove that they could be conformed to our way of thinking. And so I wrote, we had to write a major project during the senior year, and mine was entitled, An Examination of Trinitarian Proof Text. And so I wanted to take the most challenging verses of scripture used by people who believe in the Trinity and prove that they could be fit better with our way of thinking. And the more I studied Trinitarian writers and people who explained what the Trinity was, the more I discovered that my understanding was seriously flawed, that I didn't know what I was talking about when I talked about the Trinity. I was, I was responding to a caricature of the Trinity. And so the more I learned about it, the more I discovered it made more sense in relationship to the scriptures than what I was teaching. And so when I graduated from school in 1990, at the top of my class, so I really worked hard while I was in school, when I graduated from the school, I left uh, the United Pentecostal Churches in the name of the, of the organization. And I went to the Assemblies of God, which is a Trinitarian form of Pentecostalism, and I stayed there for seven years. While there, I discovered Catholicism through my studies, and I went over to the seminary here and took some courses there, and uh, ended up doing a degree in theology at the seminary. And, uh, and it opened up to me the whole world of the church fathers. It opened up to me the beauty of thinking about the Trinity not just as an argument about Scripture, but as the key to life. And so when I finished the Master's degree at the seminary here, I wrote another project paper, and that was an integration paper of all of my studies there. And that project was entitled Trinitarianism in the Christian Life. So I wanted to show, or, or I wanted to write about how the Trinity transforms morality, how we think about our lives and what's good and bad, uh, and the practical implications of the Trinity. So my whole life in one way or another has been built around the mystery of the Trinity, and, and I would say, you know, that should be not only true for me, it should be true for all of us, because in the sections of the Catechism that you're working on, there's a paragraph, it's one that's most heavily underlined in my copy of the Catechism, there's a paragraph in there that begins with the words, the mystery of the Trinity is the central mystery of the Catholic faith. It's on the poster. Is it really? Yes. Uh, yeah. The big yellow one in the middle with the black dot. The Trinity is the... Poor Cindy, I never talk about the posters. Her poster is up there on the Trinity. We always have to look at Cindy's poster. She always does one. Okay, I think I'm supposed to let y'all talk for a while, so I'm going to get Thank out of the way. Thank you, Mark. Awesome talk as well. Thank you. Stretch, stand up, and team, come on forward, and um, we'll just.